Glad you are here this morning to worship with us. We are continuing our study of the book of Colossians, and we're nearing the end, and uh, we're going to continue this morning in chapter 3. Last week, uh, Eric began the chapter, covered the first 17 verses, and in those verses, we saw that Christ is to be preeminent in our conduct as well as in our relationships with those in the church, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this morning, what we're going to see is Christ is to be preeminent in the home and in the marketplace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity we have to open up your word, to learn of you, and uh, Lord, to bring our lives into conformity uh, with the truth of Scripture. So, Lord, I pray that regardless of where we are in life at present, that we will find application for ourselves, especially uh, those of us who are in positions of authority and those of us who are under authority, which, Lord, upon hindsight, that's all of us. And so, Father, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I recently uh, read a story about a pastor who uh, performed a gravesite uh, funeral or service for a member of his congregation, a woman. And as he spoke about her, he spoke about her in glowing terms, talking about how kind she was, uh, how involved she was in the church. And after the service, her adult children came up to him to thank him uh, for the service, but also added that the person that he had just described is not the same person that they knew at home. Apparently, she was not nearly as wonderful or nice at home as she appeared to be in church. And they weren't upset or angry, but I do think that they observed what many people often observe to be too true is that people can tend to have a certain persona in church that is completely different from how they are at home or in the marketplace. Christians are not to have split personalities. We're not to be one way when we're with God's people away from the home and then a different way when we're at home and yet a different way when we're with our neighbors or we're at work. We are to be the same in our home life as we are in our church life. We're to be the same in our private life as we are to be in our public life. And there is no greater proving ground for our faith than in the home and in our workplace, where where people know us best, where they see us most often, and they really know what we're like. In chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, which we're going to cover this morning, Paul goes on to talk about how we are to treat one another in the home and in the marketplace. And the reality is this, is that if our Christianity doesn't work there, then it just doesn't work. There's something wrong. 
And in this section of, of Scripture, Paul gives us some concise instructions on how to glorify Christ in the home. And he addresses three kinds of relationships or three types of relationships, or if you would, three pairs of relationships. The first is that of husbands and wives. The second is parents and children. And the third is bond servants and their masters. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 3. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, and we'll put the scripture up on screen for you. But we also have Bibles available on the back. If you'd like to take one home with you, feel free to do that. Colossians chapter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord." Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that that you also have a master in heaven. Now, much of what Paul says in these few verses offends our modern sensibilities. I mean, wives submitting to their husbands, slaves obeying their masters and everything. Ah, come on, Paul. This is, this is 2021. But Paul's instruction is not based on the cultural norms of his day. Rather, they are rooted in the Lord. Now, it's interesting that six times in these nine verses, Paul refers to in the Lord or, or the Lord. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he actually refers to him as a master in heaven. And what is interesting here is, is that as he grounds his instruction in the Lord, he's also demonstrating reciprocity. There is a mutual reciprocity or a mutual responsibility that each person has in these uh, relationships. Those under authority and those in authority have certain responsibilities that they are expected to fulfill. So we're going to take a look at these just one at a time. We're going to begin with husbands and wives, and we'll start with the ladies first. In verse 18, you see there, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, it is hard for many people, even people within the church, to hear these words today. For many, they sound sexist, misogynistic, 
or patriarchal. And when you understand the day in which Paul wrote, it's not easy to see why, because in Paul's day, women were considered inferior beings. They were possessions. They were playthings for men. Here are some of the differences. A wife was not equal to her husband in any way. The wife existed only to serve him and to fulfill his needs. When a man died, his inheritance went to uh, his children, his firstborn son, not to his wife. A man could have as many wives as he wanted. A woman could have but one husband. A man could divorce his wife for any and all reasons, but a woman could not initiate a divorce. Women, women were not allowed to hold political office or to pursue a career. And in pagan Roman society, they were considered second-class Christians. In many ways, behind that of slaves, because at least a slave, a male slave, could receive his freedom and in time actually become a Roman citizen. A woman could not. So that's the culture in which Paul is writing and it has led many people to assume that Paul's just reflecting that culture, which is not the case. Because Christianity came on the scene and the status and the role of women in society began to change. And it's not hard to see why. When you study the scriptures, when you go back to the very first pages of Genesis and read all the way through it, there, there's some amazing things that we learn that eventually work its way out in Christianity, which then in turn impacted the world. For instance... In Scripture, we're taught that both men and women are created in the image and the likeness of God. Therefore, women were equal to men in their dignity, in their personhood, and in their worth. Paul goes on to reveal that a wife's submission to her husband is rooted in the creation order. That Adam was created first and Eve was created from and for man. And that her relationship to her husband was meant to reflect the relationship of the church to Christ. We see this very clearly in the book of Ephesians. And by the way, like I said, a third of Ephesians looks like it comes directly from Colossians. And so if you want, you might want to just keep your finger there in the book of Ephesians. But in chapter 5, we read this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I didn't have all of that up there on the screen for you, but it's verses 20 through 22 to 24. Chapter 5 of Ephesians is an amazing chapter that deals with the subject of marriage. But before we go any further, I suppose it would be helpful to at least tell you what submission is not, because we have all sorts of weird ideas of what submission is. 
Submission is not being a doormat. It's not mindless obedience on behalf of the wife. It is not domestic slavery. And it doesn't mean that your husband is always right. I heard that. Amen there. Um, he's not Jesus. You know, he, he, he is fallible. He's going to make mistakes. You, when you read this in, in context, you realize that you submit to him out of reverence for Christ, not out of the perfection of your spouse. Submission doesn't mean that you don't share your thoughts, your ideas, your concerns and feelings with your husband. You have to be careful how you communicate those. Nagging is not a good way to approach it. The silent treatment is not a good way to approach it. There is a, a way that you can approach your husband and share things with him in which he will listen. And there are ways in which you will communicate when he just shuts down. So you have to be wise with that. So what then is biblical submission? Well, over the years, I've been kind of referring back to a definition that I really like uh, from John Piper, and it's simply this. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. You see, submission by a wife is the willing, joyful response to the Christ-like servant leadership of her husband. It is a decision of the will and an attitude of the heart to affirm and support her husband's leadership. Now understand, Paul is, is writing to believers and there are so many caveats, and I know right now in, in your mind, some of you are thinking, well, what about this, and what about this, and what about that? You know, we, this is not a, a message on marriage or on submission and headship, you know. If you're interested, you can go back to some earlier messages. Even um, we uh, had a message in the book of Ephesians a couple years ago on chapter 5 would be worth checking out. It's online. And also our... Um, uh, message on biblical manhood and woman that was preached back in, I think, 2016. Um, so I'm sorry, I can't answer all of the questions here, but trying to give you some general principles as we look at Scripture here. So that's the wife's portion of this relationship. I said that there's husband and wives, parents and children, bond servants and, and masters. So let's take a look now at the husband's responsibility here in verse 19, we're told, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Here we see that the wife's submission occurs in the context of her husband's love. And that makes all the difference in the world. Paul repeats this command back in Ephesians chapter 5. There we read, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, we are commanded to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So you ha upon hearing that, you then have to ask yourself the question, 
How did he love the church? Well, it tells us. He gave himself up for her. He laid down his life for her. Now, there are other things that he has done for the church. He's expressed his love in other ways, but that's the most obvious way that he laid down his life for her. So men, husbands, we are called to lay down our lives for our wives. And that means a whole heck of a lot more than just taking a bullet for her. Although it would include that. It means we serve them by putting them first and caring for their needs. It means we seek to do what is best for them. It means that we sacrifice our time, our desires, our dreams, and our plans to ensure that they know that they know that we love them. Now, I think each of those things we could ask ourselves, well, how can I do that? How can I demonstrate that? And I suppose there are a a million ways we could do it. So I want to challenge you to go home and think about how can you sacrifice your time and your desires and your dreams and your plans for the sake of your wife to demonstrate your love for them. For some of you, it may mean putting up the golf clubs for a while or the fishing poles. Eric. Or, or, or maybe it's video games. I mean, we can spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of time entertaining ourselves, doing all sorts of things when we could be using that same amount of time in investing it in our relationships with our spouse, with our wives. Just something to think about. And I've said it before, and I'll, 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 I'll say it again. I have never met a Christian wife who has a problem submitting to her husband when she knows that her husband is loving her like Christ loved the church. I just, I've never had that. And I don't think I ever will. Now, gentlemen, notice Scripture also says something else here. It says, do not be harsh with them. I think that this is a temptation uh, for most guys. I just, I just think the way we're made, the way we're wired, I, I know it's true for me. Uh, I can be short. I can be irritable. Um, I can be harsh in the way that I communicate to my wife. So being cognizant of that is the first step. The second step is now I have to find ways in which to not be that. Maybe this story will help you as it has helped me. There was a husband who was talking with his wife one evening, and he said to her, I am so sorry that I let my anger out at you so often. How do you manage to stay so calm with my foul moods? To which he replied, I always clean the toilet when that happens. And that helps? Yes, because I use your toothbrush. (laughs) Husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Uh, Otherwise, you better start checking your toothbrush. But seriously, this, this verse, do not be harsh 
with your, your wives. Um, it, it's something that I have really wrestled with. It, it's, it's a reminder to me that, and, and to all of us husbands, that we are to be gentle with our wives in the way that we talk to them and in the way that we treat them. Now, you have to understand, do you understand now why this was so radical in Paul's day? Can you imagine being a husband in that day and age hearing Paul tell you, love your wife. Don't be harsh with her. Treat her with respect. Care for her. It, it, it was revolutionary. So, here we have the first set of relationships in our text. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. The second set of relationships is that of children and parents. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Now, I got to tell you, as I read that verse, I'm a little sad. You say, why? It's because many of our children are not in here this morning. They're not in this service to hear this admonition. And Paul's letters were meant to be heard by the entire congregation. They were designed to be read to the entire church. And Paul assumes that children would be in worship with their parents. So he addresses them directly. And he does the same thing in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, parents, you have to admit, you would have loved your kids to hear this, right? I mean, as you're sitting there, I mean, I can just kind of picture now kind of envisioning all the kids sitting there. Dad leans over and said, you hear that, kids? You want to you wanna be happy? You want to live long on the earth? Obey your mother and me, right? Maybe, maybe you prefer what Paul says in Colossians. Children, obey your parents in everything. Now, wouldn't that be nice? Total obedience on behalf of our children. Now, do you wish they were here with you? Don't misunderstand me. I, I'm not arguing that we should get rid of our children's ministry or our student ministry, they have their place, but texts like this make me wonder if we're missing out on something. And as a former pastor to children and students and parents, I, I, I have had to ask myself some difficult questions. As, as we look at how we do ministry here in 2021, is, is it born out of Scripture? Is it man-made ideas? And, and I don't have all the answers here, but, 
But here's one of the questions that I've, I've asked myself. How in the world did children ever become mature followers of Jesus before there were specialized ministries to children and students? See, most of us have never thought along this. We just kind of assume student ministry, children ministry, it's always been around. It's a relatively recent phenomenon. Now, you can go back to the Middle Ages, and you can see that there were some catechisms and, and things like that, but most of that training was done in the home by parents. So I wonder, how, how did the church ever produce people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards. How about Lottie Moon, Amy Carmichael, Susanna Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, Fanny Crosby, William and Catherine Booth, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, and the list just goes on and on and on. How? I've wrestled with this. The elders have wrestled with this to be honest. And I think this is why we decided a while back to keep our middle and high school students in service. It wasn't always that way. And it's also why we have our elementary kids with us in service, worshiping together with us every fourth Sunday. It may not be the total answer, but it's one way we have wrestled with this idea of understanding that children are a part of the church too. And Paul clearly expected them to hear his admonition to them, both to the Colossian church and to the Ephesian church. And understanding that the book of Ephesians was a circulating letter, it meant that he expected that to happen in every church. So, with that being said, to the children who can hear me, do you want to make God happy? Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Paul goes on to address fathers specifically because of his role as head of the home and because I think that they are most prone to the problem that we see here in verse 21. We read, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Again, this parallels what he writes in Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So here we see the child's obedience is in the context of parental love. And if parents expect or desire to see obedience in everything, then they, especially fathers, must not provoke or exasperate their children in a way that ultimately discourages them from obedience. Now, my parents growing up didn't know the Lord. I mean, they went to church. They believed in God up here. And my relationship with my father, though it ended extremely well, and he has come, came to faith in Christ before the Lord took him home, my upbringing was, 
was one that did not reflect this. I was discouraged. I was exasperated. I was provoked to anger as a young man. Figured if I'm going to get in trouble, if I'm going to be treated this way, why even bother? And as a Christian parent, I have fought against that. At the end of the day, I, I don't know how well I have done, but I know that I didn't want to be my, like my dad in that regard, and, and I hope that my kids, and especially my son, doesn't feel that I have. But we can be prone, not only to be harsh with our wives, but gentlemen, we can be prone to provoke our kids to anger in the way that we discipline them, in the way that we talk to them, in the way that we treat them. I've heard it said that rules without relationships leads to rebellion. And I think that's true. That our kids need to know first and foremost that we love them. That we have their best interests in heart and that even when we discipline them, we're disciplining them out of love, not out of anger. Not out of disappointment or disillusionment. We need to understand that our children are also made in the image and the likeness of God. And they are still growing. They are still learning. They will not always be as they are. Boy, I'll tell you, if you had looked at me and you had made your final judgment when I was 15, 16, 18, even 20 years of old, you would have given up on me. But praise God, he didn't. We need to pray for our kids. We need to stimulate them to follow Christ, to inspire them, to model for them what it means to be a lover of Jesus. And dads, I, I, I don't know how, how I can stress this anymore, you're the greatest single role model they have. Are you leading your family well? Are you loving your, your kid's mom the way that God calls you to do that? And are you loving them and disciplining them so that they can be all that God intends them to be? It is clear from these first two commands that Christ is to be preeminent in the home. But Paul gives us one more set relationships here, and that is of bond servants to their masters. Verse 22, it says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Remember, in Paul's day, Slaves had no rights. They were not much different than beasts of burden. So in addressing them directly, he's doing something radical again. He is elevating them to a status unheard of in the ancient world. He, he doesn't just tell them what to do. He's just not barking out commands. He's actually reasoning with them. So he, he's, he, he's telling us that, that he understands that these are people with minds and brains that 
function just like anyone else and, and that he is going to reason with them and not just bark out orders. Now, I'm going to address the issue of slavery in a couple of weeks when we look at the book of Philemon. We're going to spend uh, just a couple of weeks looking at that wonderful book. Um, and, uh, and so I'm going to encourage you, whatever questions, objections you may have that are running through your head as we talk about slavery and Paul's letter here and the things that he's saying, hold on to them until then. For now, I just want you to see that Paul is treating these bond servants with dignity and respect. They too were created in the image and the likeness of God. Christ died for them, not just for the Jews, not just for those who were free, not just for men, but for women and children. They too have dignity and value before God and man. And now Paul is writing to them as responsible members of God's church. And it's interesting that Paul spends more time talking about the master-slave relationship than he does that of husbands and wives. And it may be, it may be because the bearer of Paul's letter to the Colossians was himself a runaway slave. And that might have been in their mind as they're reading this letter. Maybe even before they read the letter. There might have been some objections as to should we even read this letter because it came from him. It came from Onesimus. Onesimus, by the way, is the subject of the letter to Philemon that we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. So you may be asking, or you may not be asking, but... Uh, why are bond servants included in a discussion about the home? Well, that's because in the Greco-Roman world, bond servants or slaves were considered a part of the master's household. They were actually a part of the home. Now, for us, 2,000 years removed, we need to see a greater principle. And I think as we look at what Paul says here, we can see that we can apply what he says here uh, to the workplace, to the marketplace, to the employer-employee relationships, or for that matter, any relationship where there is kind of a, a superior to subordinate type uh, relationship, whether it be in government, the military, or even in the realm of sports. Paul says here, a slave's attitude towards serving his master should be governed by the fear of the Lord. They are not to put on a show when their masters are looking, nor are they to be people pleasers. They are to work hard with sincerity of heart as unto the Lord. Why? Because Paul wants Christian slaves to adorn the gospel by how they live and work. Consider what Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, verse 9. It's not on the screen, so just listen up. He writes, 
teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them and not talk back to them and not steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Did you hear that? So that in every way they will make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. Attractive for what purpose? Paul is most concerned about men's souls, about where they will spend their eternal destiny. And he wants not just bondservants, everyone who calls the name of Christ, but in this context, in this historical setting, slaves had an amazing opportunity to live their lives in such a way that everyone around them would see the beauty of the gospel. That they would come to understand and believe that Jesus Christ was truly the Son of God, that he came to earth, that he died on the cross for the sins of humanity, and that we can be brought into right relationship through repentance and faith in him. He doesn't want slaves to give Jesus a bad name. He wants them to work hard and to work as unto the Lord. I like what Haddon Robinson said about this section of scripture. He says, Paul gave them a way to grasp the glimpse or a glimpse of the glory amid the grind He wanted them to adorn the doctrine of God, that is, to show the beauty of their faith in Christ by how they work. Martin Luther understood this when he wrote, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. See, this is why Paul writes now in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. See, Paul is arguing that we do not work for an earthly reward, but for a heavenly one. Earthly masters or bosses may treat us poorly. They may even abuse us. But we have a master in heaven who treats us as sons and daughters and heirs. And it is from him that we will receive 
our reward. So let me ask you, are you employed by someone? Are you under the authority of someone? What is your attitude about your job? Your boss? What is your work ethic like? Do you show up on time? Do you put in a full day's work or are you, you only busy doing stuff when the boss is there looking? What is your motivation for doing your job? A paycheck? A promotion? Pat on the back? Paul says it ought to be the Lord. We're to work as unto him, for him. He is the one whom we serve, and he is the one who will reward us. Paul concludes this relationship, pair, and this section in chapter 4, verse 1, where he writes, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So once again, we see this principle of reciprocity, that in the demand for complete obedience on behalf of the bondservant, the master is now expected to deal justly and fairly with his servant. Now, Paul is very brief, but he's very pointed here. Masters, treat your servants as you would have your heavenly master treat you. Now, you just stop and think about that for a moment. If, if they were to do that, how would they be different than anybody else in their home? If they treated them the way they would want to be treated by God. They might have a title of bondservant or slave or whatever it might be, but they would not really be slaves, would they? They would be slaves of Christ, but they would be brothers and sisters to their masters. No doubt there are some of you that are here that are business owners or employers. Perhaps you're here and you manage people. So the questions I would ask you is, how do you treat your employees? How do you treat those who are in whom you are in authority over. Do you take advantage of them? Do you pay them a fair wage? Do you give them overtime, time off, perks? Are you just and reasonable in your dealings with them? Do they respect you? Or do they fear you? Remember, you too have a master in heaven, and he shows no partiality. Paul's warning there in verse 25 applies to masters as well as to bond servants. He will reward those who do good, and he will repay those who do wrong. So as I close, let me remind you that Christians do not have split personalities. We ought not have different personas, be one way when we're with 
church people in another way when we're amongst the lost or even our own families. We are to be the same in the home as we are in the church, in our private life as in our public life. Christ is to be preeminent in our relationships in the home and in the marketplace. And if our Christianity doesn't work there, then it just doesn't work at all. But praise God because of what Christ has done for us. We are complete in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, for this opportunity that you've given to us to open your word, to learn of you, to know what is expected of us. And Father, we realize that we are sinners and we are far from perfect and never will be perfect. But Lord, we also believe that you live in us and we have the Holy Spirit in which to empower us to live for you in a God-honoring way. Lord, teach us how to love one another. For husbands and wives, for parents and children, for those in authority over others and for those under authority. Lord, remind us that there is no more Jew or Greek male or female, young or old, but they are all one in Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.